Welcome to the Keos Podcast, a series dedicated to bringing you the best claims and legal insight. Hello. In 2017, the Scottish Government passed the Limitation Childhood Abuse Scotland Act. This was a landmark law that removed the three-year limitation period for civil actions relating to historic abuse that occurred after the 26th of September 1964. Today, we are going to look at the first case in which that act has been comprehensively considered, JXJ and the de la Salle brothers. Joining me to do so is my colleague Laura Baxendale, an associate and solicitor advocate in our Glasgow office. Laura, thanks very much for joining me. Before we start, I was intrigued to note that although this case considered Scottish law, it was nevertheless applied in an English court by an English judge, Mr Justice Chamberlain. How did that come about? Hi, Dan. Well, it's all to do with the circumstances of the claim. JXJ was a pupil at an approved residential school in Scotland, and responsibility for the school lay with a board of managers who had been appointed by the Archbishop of Glasgow. However, the headmaster, the deputy headmaster, and many of the teaching staff were members of the De La Salle Brothers Religious Order, which was based in England. And so although the incidents had occurred in Scotland, England was the appropriate forum and the action was raised there. But with Scots law applying? Yes. And as a result, the issue of limitation was governed by Scots law. Now, this was significant because the limitation regimes in Scotland and England are different. And so the judge had a guidance note prepared for him by a Scottish QC, David Sheldon. Okay, so we have an English court, nevertheless, applying Scottish limitation law to the case. Now, I was just wondering, Laura, if we could get a bit of a handle on what it was about. It was primarily a sexual abuse case, wasn't it? Yeah. So JXJ claimed that he had been repeatedly sexually assaulted by a lay member of staff, Mr McKinstry. Now, McKinstry had been convicted of those assaults and others in 2003. But JXJ also claimed that he was physically assaulted by a number of brothers who were members of the order. We can think of JXJ's claim as having three elements. Firstly, the sexual assaults perpetrated by McKinstry. Secondly, acts and omissions of Brother Alphonsus, who was the headmaster, in exposing the claimant to the risk of abuse. And finally, further assaults committed by other brothers and jointly by a group of brothers and McKinstry. Right, okay. Well, before we get into the case in more detail, can we just have something on how the Scottish limitation regime differs from that in England and Wales? That's, of course, the system that I work with. Yeah, so... As you know, in England and Wales, limitation is governed by the Limitation Act 1980. Abuse cases fall under Section 11 of the Act, which provides for a three-year time limit to bring a claim where a claimant was abused as a child. That clock doesn't begin to tick until the age of 18. But that time limit isn't set in stone, as it were. Indeed, it's subject to the discretionary exclusion under Section 33, which gives the court the discretion to disapply the limitation period if it appears to the court that it would be equitable to allow an action to proceed, having regard to the prejudice caused to both parties. The court's discretionary power is unfettered, although, as you know, Section 33 sets out a non-exhaustive list of factors, the principal ones being the length and reasons for the delay, the effect of the passage of time on the cogency of evidence, the extent to which the claimant acted promptly and reasonably in bringing the claim, 
and the steps taken to obtain medical, legal or other expert advice. It's important to note that in England and Wales, the burden is on the claimant to show that it would be equitable to disapply the limitation period. If the claimant can't clear that hurdle, then the claim won't be allowed to proceed. The key point in Scotland is that following the 2017 Act, that burden is now reversed. The onus is on the defendant to show that the action cannot proceed rather than being on the claimant to show that it can. So that's clearly more claimant friendly then. Yeah, but to balance against six decades of historic claims, Section 17D of the Act does provide some safeguards to the defendant. So under Section 17D, an action for non-recent abuse can proceed unless a defendant can show either that it was not possible for a fair hearing to take place or that as a result of the claim being brought after this time, the defendant would be substantially prejudiced if the action were to proceed and that this prejudice outweighs the claimant's interest in the action proceeding. Okay, so I take it that in JXJ, the defendant therefore argued that either there couldn't be a fair trial or that there was substantial prejudice to the defendant. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it contested all three grounds of the claim. So the sexual abuse by McKinstry, the acts and omissions that exposed him to the risk of abuse and the physical abuse by McKinstry and the De La Salle brothers at the school. OK, so we've got two defences here then. Before we look at how they were applied in the case, let's just find out a little more about how they work. Let's look at fair trial first. What did the judge have to say about that? Well, interestingly, he said that existing case law that had been decided under the previous limitation regime in Scotland could still be regarded as helpful and instructive. The judge added that the question of whether a trial is fair is a binary one. And as David Sheldon QC puts it in his report to the court, it either is or it is not a fair trial. The judge noted that if he decides that there cannot be a fair trial on any of the three grounds, then that's the end of that ground. And if he decides that there can be a fair trial in principle, he then has to go on to consider whether the defendant has suffered substantial prejudice that outweighs the prejudice to the claimant should the claim be allowed to proceed. The judge's interpretation um, brings to mind Mr Justice Mayle's formulation of the English and Welsh approach in NA against Nottinghamshire County Council. If a fair trial is no longer possible, that will be the end of the matter. An action cannot be allowed to proceed if that would result in an unfair trial. But if a fair trial is possible, notwithstanding that there is some prejudice, the balance of injustice needs to be considered. Weighing whatever prejudice the defendant has suffered in the light of all the circumstances of the case. Interesting. So another reminder there that even now, perhaps the Scottish system isn't a million miles away from that in England and Wales. So um, that's a fair trial defence. What about substantial prejudice? So contrary to what was once the position, the new prejudice test requires the defendant to show that it would be substantially prejudiced rather than there is merely a real possibility of it. Furthermore, the prejudice has to be substantial rather than merely significant. And even if the defendant establishes that the prejudice is substantial and that it would occur should the claim proceed, he also has to show that the prejudice outweighs the claimant's interest in the action proceeding. Right. OK. And how does a court weigh that interest up? Well, the seriousness of the abuse which the claimant claims to have suffered and the claimed effects of that abuse will certainly be relevant. However, unlike in the old limitation regime, it doesn't require consideration of the reasons for the claim's delay. 
I see, yes. And there's another distinction, actually, with the England and Wales regime where that can be an important factor. OK, so those are the tests. How did Mr Justice Chamberlain apply them to the facts in JXJ? So traditionally under the old Scottish limitation regime, a court would have looked at various causes of action in turn. And if there couldn't be a fair trial in relation to any one of those causes of action, then the court would have dismissed the entire claim. But under the new limitation regime, Mr Justice Chamberlain took a very different approach. He analysed the new act and decided that he would still look at each cause of action separately. But if any cause of action was to be dismissed, that would not prevent one or more of the other causes of action from being pursued. Right. So you've got each of those three grounds then being considered in their own right. Let's start with the sexual abuse by McKinstry. What did the judge have to say? So the judge noted that the defendant admitted that McKinstry committed the sexual assaults of which he was convicted. And whilst JXJ's evidence about the extent of those assaults went beyond what the defendant's admissions were, the difference was insignificant. Right, OK, so that's the assaults themselves. Obviously, those convictions helpful to the claimant. But then there's the added question, isn't there, of whether the defendant could be vicariously liable for those assaults. What was the limitation position on that? Yes. So the judge said that vicarious liability could indeed be determined by the court. Many of the documents concerning the defendant's vicarious liability were still available. The defendant was also able to adduce evidence from Brother Lavinius, whose recollection as to the extent of influence exercised by the Board of Managers and the Institute was clear, despite the time that had elapsed since he worked at the school. So unsurprisingly, the defendants failed on the McKinstry assaults, but they were unable to show that it was not possible for a fair trial to take place or that there was substantial prejudice. Therefore, that part of the claim got over the limitation hurdle. But there was a catch, wasn't there? Yes, and it didn't concern limitation, but vicarious liability. The problem for the claimant was that McKinstry was not an employee or a member of the order, and neither on the facts was his relationship with the order sufficiently proximate for him to be regarded as being akin to an employee for the purposes of vicarious liability. Right, OK, so let's now look at the second ground, which was the negligence claim against Brother Alphonsus. Yes, this was the claim that Brother Alphonsus had, through his acts and omissions, exposed JXJ to the risk of McKinstry's abuse and or that he failed to protect JXJ from the abuse. Now, here the judge reached a very different conclusion on limitation. He found that a fair trial was not possible. Moreover, even if he had found that a fair trial was possible, he would have concluded that the defendant was nonetheless substantially prejudiced and that this outweighed the claimant's interest in proceeding. In fact, he went even further. He found that the prejudice to the defendant in this case was more than just substantial. It was close to total. OK, why then? Well, it was because nothing at all was known about what steps, if any, were taken by Brother Alphonsus in response to JXJ's complaint. Brother Alphonsus died in 1990 and there was a lack of any other relevant evidence. And so even giving full weight to JXJ's interest in the action proceeding, the prejudice to the defendant was such that the action should not proceed. OK, and finally, there were the alleged physical assaults committed by other brothers and jointly by a group of brothers and McKinstry. What did the judge say there? So, all but two of the alleged abusers concerned are now dead. 
As to the two who were alive, McKinstry was not the principal wrongdoer. And as for the other brother, the claimant had admitted in an email that he didn't even remember him. As a result, the judge held that a fair trial was not possible. In addition, he said that even if he had found that a fair trial was possible, he would still have concluded that the defendant would have been substantially prejudiced and that this outweighed the claimant's interest in proceeding. Okay, thanks very much, Laura. Summing up then, how do you think that this act and the case changes matters in abuse cases in Scotland? Mm. Well, under the usual limitation regime for personal injury cases in Scotland, the action as a whole was barred by passage of time. The court had the power, if it considered it equitable to do so, to allow the action to proceed, even though it was out of time. In abuse cases, the emphasis is now different. The onus is not on the claimant to show that the action should proceed, but on the defendant to show that it shouldn't. Nevertheless, as this case demonstrates, there will still be cases where defendants can succeed on limitation. There is another point worth making, though. The Scottish courts had always applied the limitation defence to the entire action. In JXJ, each cause of action was considered separately. Now, this is different from the usual Scottish approach. But the 2017 Act provides a new approach in the form of a specific limitation regime for matters of childhood abuse. The effect of this is that it places the existing Scottish authorities in a new light, and it stands to reason that the court's approach should be updated. And do you see Mr Justice Chamberlain's approach in JXJ being followed by the Scottish courts in due course? Well, decisions of the English courts are not binding. It is likely that the Scottish courts will want to deliver their own interpretation of Scottish legislation in due course. Nonetheless, this judgment is an instructive and detailed interpretation of the law and should be regarded as judicially persuasive and a route map for the application of the 2017 Act. In the last week or so, the Sheriff Appeal Court have issued their decision in LM against DG executors and held that there should be a preliminary proof on the question of whether it is or it is not possible for a fair hearing to take place. They have ordained the defendant to lead at proof. The Sheriff Appeal Court drew parties' attention to the decision of JXJ. However, they expressed no view, as these will be live issues that require to be considered by the court at the preliminary proof. So hopefully we shouldn't have to wait too long for the Scottish Court's interpretation. Well, we shall look forward to seeing what they have to say. For now, thank you very much, Laura, and goodbye. Goodbye.